You are listening to National Security Law Today. You know, one of the things that I think was really important about the book, which I think had layers and layers and layers of lessons for almost anybody, whether you're interested in national security or you just should be. But we talked a little bit about this is all about tax avoidance. You know, the use of cutouts, Guernsey, Jersey, Bahamas and offshores. It's always made illicit activity very easy. And one of the other things it's done is it's created these tax havens whereby, you know, tax revenue that should go to the benefit of the global commonwealth, like the average citizens in any one of these countries where the business is actually established, is deprived of those people. So how did you learn that this sort of deprivation of meaningful assets plays out? And if you want to sort of segue this into where you see the current supply chain issues that have become really bad during the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, How are those two things sort of intertwined to the ultimate detriment of just the average person? What's really amazing about the legal structures of shipping are that this is an industry that that may as well exist on Mars. It, It is totally outside of the regulatory and governance structures that bind the rest of the global economy. And that's true because of shell companies in, in offshore tax havens. It's especially true because of flags of convenience, which are a, a really amazing innovation, uh, if you can call it that, where ships whose owners and crews and cargoes have nothing to do with Panama or Liberia officially or, 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 flagged. Or Poland, right, Matt? Or Poland, <laughs> or Poland. indeed, or, or anywhere, are, are officially flagged by those countries, even when in some cases... The registries doing the flagging have very little to do with the countries they claim to represent. So a fun fact about the Liberian registry is that it's headquartered in Dulles, Virginia, and is a private company that does kick some money back to the government of Liberia. But it is essentially a for-profit enterprise, which has been given the right to use the Liberian flag to make money. This is an industry that does not pay a lot of tax. Uh, If you look at Greece, which is the number one ship-owning nation in the world by some margin, Greek ship owners are actually exempt from corporate income tax. And this is a carve-out that they maintained uh, even in the the worst depths of the Greek financial crisis when the Greek state needed revenue absolutely anywhere it could find it. The ship owners made a sort of what they called a one-time voluntary contribution to the Greek exchequer. And in exchange, they kept their uh, tax-free status indefinitely. So that, that's obviously an extreme example, but the bottom line is that this is an industry that does not operate in conformity with the principles that we expect of other major industries. And right now, as, as everyone knows, uh, anyone who's been to a supermarket or, or tried to buy a bicycle or, or anything else knows, we're in a supply chain crunch where there are big bottlenecks in global logistics. Shipping rates have gone up dramatically. Shipping companies are making an incredible amount of money and rapidly making good any losses they experienced during the pandemic. Yeah, those profits are, for the most part, not going to be taxed. They are going to be windfalls that are kept in offshore structures where they are not accessible to the IRS or or Her Majesty's Revenue uh, in Britain or or their equivalents in other developed countries. So this is kind of an industry that is, in some ways, out of time. It operates in a way that you'd think wouldn't be possible anymore. And yet it is. And and partly it is because there's a lot of indifference. No policymaker, uh, whether in the US or Europe or anywhere else, is terribly focused on shipping. 
that may change as the supply chain crunch continues and, and gets worse. But so far, the shipping industry has been very successful at, at staying out of the public eye. And I guess we should remind our listeners about what happened with Greece and the EU, that while it's not taxing this revenue from shipping, you know, they really almost fell out of the EU over the financial crisis. And there was a lot of investigative journalism that occurred during that time. I don't think until this book, it really surfaced in the way that you've done it. I think what I remember is drone flights over the Athens wealthy neighborhoods that revealed swimming pools that people weren't paying taxes on, which is just a pittance compared to what the shipping industry could be bringing in for the benefit of Greece and for the benefit of the EU overall. I actually think this is sort of a massive, massive conversation that needs to be had. And I think a lot of what you've said about opacity, it's disappearing in this highly connected world where people can get access to information that when these sort of rules and norms were developed just did not exist. That's right. I think some of the secrecy has fallen away. And you can see that through uh, things like something called AIS, which is the ship tracking system, that all commercial vessels are supposed to have a transponder that broadcasts their location. There are tons of websites where for free, you can see basic information. If you pay a little bit, you know, not very much actually, you can get extremely detailed information on the movements of ships. And uh, that allows kind of open source tracking to an extent that was never possible uh, until all these tools were put in place. Uh, That said, there are ways to get around it. There's been a lot of efforts uh, chronicled through some very good journalism by uh, the Wall Street Journal and others to smuggle oil into North Korea, for example, through and what will typically happen is a tanker carrying a legitimate cargo from one destination to another will suddenly disappear from the IS screen. Its transponder will be switched off. In the time its transponder has been switched off, it links up with another vessel, transfers its oil to that vessel, and the oil is then on its way to North Korea. The transponder is switched back on and no one is the wiser. Uh, Some of the investigations that have been done by journalists on this have taken advantage of satellite pictures. Of course, and it's much harder to hide a vessel from a satellite, but the satellite has to know where to look. Some of the veil of secrecy has lifted through uh, the efforts of regulators, through the efforts of journalists and others. But for the most part, this industry does still operate in the shadows quite successfully. You must have given some thought about how these holes could be closed, because it seems like If there was a a will, it would have to be globally, I would think, rather than just sort of hurting these people here and there. Good legislation that some sort of negotiated end to this structure uh, would be in the interest of the global economy and, frankly, the global commonwealth. Have you thought about what you see as holes, specific legal holes that might be closed? The, The broader context here is that whenever increased regulation is proposed on shipping, The shipping industry and its lobbyists will very quickly say that anything you do is going to raise costs. If you raise costs, that's going to be felt at Targets and Walmarts across America, you know, and and their equivalents everywhere else, since we are so dependent on this industry. And, And, you know, if you take a related example, we go back even before 2011, when this book begins, to the few years after 9 11 when there was suddenly a lot of concern about containers coming into U.S. ports. You know, what if, for example, someone smuggled a dirty bomb into New York Harbor inside a container? And and by the way, keeping with how nobody knows who owns a ship, the people on a ship don't know what's in the containers. 
All they know is, is that if a container has something flammable or hazardous in it, otherwise they have no idea. And uh, very quickly, the industry said, and, and they were right, that uh, any kind of meaningful screening of containers would slow down shipping so much and bottleneck the ports so severely that the American consumer economy as we know it would collapse. So anytime there is an effort to rein in shipping to change how it does business, you will hear warnings like that. And sometimes they may be true. If the industry is less profitable because it has to pay taxes, they might have to raise shipping rates. And that may come through in consumer prices. But nonetheless, I would argue that we're way past the time where we can afford to have this incredibly important global business operating in the shadows. And there are a few things that could be implemented relatively simply, although they would require a significant amount of political will. One is for the U.S. government to say, starting you know, at X date, a year or two from now, vessels that intend to load or unload at U.S. ports are going to have to declare their ultimate beneficial ownership to the Treasury or whatever other agency is empowered to collect that information. Very suddenly, that would change the business model of shipping entirely. And if, if Europe and other developed economies followed suit, we'd be in a whole new world. Another example would be restricting the use of flags of convenience. There is some precedent for this. In the U.S., uh, there's something called the Jones Act, which requires that vessels operating between U.S. ports be crewed by Americans, owned by Americans, and flagged under the flag of the United States. So, for example, uh, shipping between the U.S. mainland and Puerto Rico is run by a Jones Act-compliant U.S.-owned and U.S.-flagged vessels. As a result, by the way, that shipping is quite a bit more expensive. And I don't want to sugarcoat the fact that there are costs to all of this. But I, I think the question is whether the, the cheap shipping rates that we've all become accustomed to are really a good deal in light of the corruption and crime and abuse that is allowed to, to continue in the industry. All right. Those are all really good thoughts. And I think the important thing about this book to me, in addition to all the sort of larger policy implications that are raised, is that a good man, David Mockett, doesn't survive his own integrity in this book. And there is a real villain behind this. And I do think it's very beautifully drawn. And it's a crime story, as well as sort of illuminating all of these massive infirmities and gaping holes in this industry. Everybody wants to hear process when an author is on. And so I've got to hit you with that question, of course. How did you come by these details? This had to have taken the entire decade since this event for you to accumulate. Well, my co-author, uh, Kit Chalel, who's, who's a, a very accomplished investigative reporter, and I began working on this in summer of 2016. We'd come into the story sort of by accident. Kit and I had worked on a big project before this about Muammar Gaddafi's Libya. And we wanted to do something again together. Kit had gotten wind of this remarkable case involving this oil tanker, a, 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 an apparent pirate attack. And as you alluded to, uh, the death of someone involved, David Mockett, who was murdered in 2011. His murder never solved. No one ever charged. And uh, Kit and I got to work in a process that took a very, very long time. We were fortunate in that there's been a lot of litigation around this, both in the U.S., where it's incredibly easy to get court documents, thanks to PACER, but also in the UK, where it is a lot trickier to get legal documents. You typically have to convince someone involved in the case to give them to you, even though they are officially public. But that provided an excellent basis for getting started because there were incredible details in these 
legal filings. There were interviews with crew members. There were minute by minute dissections of, of what had supposedly occurred and in fact did occur on, on board the vessel and, and what supposedly occurred and what did occur ended up differing in ways that turned out to be important. And uh, from those documents, we were able to put together a huge list of people to talk to. I think in the end, it had about 200 people on it who had some connection to this case, some knowledge of either the events of this case or, or the people involved. And uh, over several years, a kid and I just methodically worked our way through it. Ultimately, most of them did talk to us. There were a few holdouts, but we did uh, get to most of them in the end. And in particular, a couple of very brave and very tenacious private investigators, Richard Beale and Michael Connor, who are really the protagonists of the second half of the book, opened up to us to an incredible extent about their work on this case. They had been hired to get to the bottom of it shortly after it occurred, and they really became obsessed. It took over their lives. And uh, they became so obsessed, in fact, that they kind of went beyond their brief. Uh, they'd been hired by London insurers at Lloyd's of London to uh, help put together a legal case to prove that a fraud had been committed here. Richard and Michael rather quickly decided that their clients were not sufficiently serious in their view about really getting to the bottom of it. And they took matters into their own hands. And, and that created a real tension in the story, which, which I think comes through in the book. In terms of, of how we put this all together, Kit and I, it was a lot of very old-fashioned journalism, uh, some very long interviews, uh, cajoling and convincing people to, to give us documents, to share information. Uh, a lot of the reporting occurred during the pandemic, so it was necessarily over Zoom, which uh, I was a little skeptical about because uh, I'm certainly a, a reporter of the school who believes that you only get good stuff by showing up. But I guess uh, people were bored enough at home that they were willing to talk, and we ended up being able to put it together. And, and the two investigators you reference were retired Metropolitan Police, which is the London Police Department. They just weren't having it. They saw a crime and pursued it basically into the ground and against odds and against their former department in many instances. That's right. So Richard and Michael are old school London coppers. Richard has a real Cockney accent. Michael's from South London, so he's a bit of a different demographic, but same idea. Uh, he would be played by Michael Caine in the movie, if that, if that helps set the scene a little bit. They are old fashioned cops with an old fashioned sense of right and wrong. And they felt that the way things were done in the insurance industry, and particularly maritime insurance, didn't accord with that sense of right and wrong. And, and that really put them into great tension and, and occasionally open conflict with their clients. And that is one of the remarkable things I learned in this book is that fraud in the insurance industry, and especially in maritime insurance, has never really been a big priority for Lloyd's of London and its member institutions. They're kind of not exactly okay with it, but willing to tolerate a considerable degree of fraud because it's very hard to prove in court. Uh, there is a high legal bar in the English courts for approving fraud when it comes to shipping. If you want to look at it from a more commercial angle, accusing your clients of being criminals is not very good for business. And business is good. So a lot of these insurers have decided over the years not to rock the boat, if you'll forgive the pun, and to pay out uh, the odd dodgy claim once in a while, as long as things don't get too excessive. And uh, Richard and Michael just decided that was not okay with them. And they uh, pursued this as absolutely as far as they could take it. 
actually the the every men in your book are really quite the heroes between Mockett and the two former Met police. And, and I like that. I'd prefer to see Daniel Craig cast in that role if I were in charge of that. Um, I hope you'd go along with that. And I do hope you sell the film rights because it'll give you the opportunity, I would hope, to write another book. It's been super having you on. I'm really glad that you took time for us, especially in what must be a very busy schedule. I want to also mention that I was very pleased to see the review, which appeared online in the print edition of the New York Times book review. For our listeners, you may want to take a look at that. We'll certainly hyperlink it, as well as other links to how you can purchase the book after you've listened to this podcast. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to have you. I hope you'll come back in the future. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Now, on May 11th of 2022, the European Union sanctioned Russian oil and it blocked insurance clearinghouses and companies, including Lloyd's of London, from covering Russian shipments of oil and the vessels that carry them. So we'll hyperlink to these sanctions and to press about the insurance industry's pushback against these sanctions based on the insurance claims that finding the ultimate ownership of a vessel is just too difficult given the numbers of cutouts between the owners, flags, crew, and cargo. So thanks for tuning in tonight to NSLT. Share this episode with a friend and discuss it over coffee. It certainly is a good episode for policymakers that need to think forward and not backward about national security law. Remember to subscribe to us. You can find us at Twitter as well, at ABA NATSEC, or feel free to send us an email for your feedback at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. Remember that the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue to keep you informed. Remember, the events of today will inform the national security law of tomorrow. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and your listening app of choice. And remember, everybody here today is here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.